through 9 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you should find one there in the seat in front of you. So if you're going to be using uh, that version, it's on page 979, 979, help you find it, hopefully a little more quickly. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to be in verses 5 through 9. So this passage, uh, like many in Scripture, uh, can be uh, challenging to us. Even perhaps as you uh, look down at verse 5, maybe even that, that first word, can be jarring to us. We bring with us uh, a lot of baggage to, to any text, our own cultural lens and experience, which can cause us to twist or misunderstand Scripture. And so this morning, as our uh, time allows, I hope to uh, lay out before you some tough questions, some tough answers, and hopefully... To, to lift up Christ in our hearts. And so we're going to start uh, just by, by reading the passage, Ephesians 6, chapters, or verses 5 through 9. This is what the word of the Lord says. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, that there is no partiality Father, we ask that, Lord, as we come to difficult passages, Lord, that you would give us wisdom. Lord, that you would be lifted up. Lord, that you would give us understanding. We pray these things in Christ's name. Pause to, to pray just uh, one more time and and uh, answering some of these, these harder questions. And, and you may have already seen it. And perhaps your translation, even in verse 5, has, has an even harsher word. And I, I think this is the, the frame uh, of our questions, um, if your uh, translation says, slaves, obey your masters. So this is our, our first question, and then we'll, we'll move into the, the passage at large. At large, But the, the question is, does the Bible condone slavery? Starting with our, our historical context and lens, there is difficulty in this passage and others uh, in Scripture at large of importing language. That is that there is a specific nuance and context uh, to the words that we use as informed by our experience, by our history here in this country or in others that have seen the pain, tragedy, and suffering of slavery. And it is a question that is worth asking. Does the Bible condone slavery? So much so that when the ESV uh, committee met there at Tyndale House at the University of Cambridge, they sat down uh, to translate this word here in the Greek and, and the similar word there in the Old Testament in the Hebrew for slave, for bondservant, for whatever it might be. Uh, they had this question. So you had uh, the British scholars on one side and the American scholars on the other, and, and they're dealing with the Greek, the, the, or the Greek word doulos and the Hebrew ebed, and they're sitting there, and the British uh, scholars are saying, 
yes, this is clearly slave. And the Americans are sitting here and saying, no, 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 you don't understand the, the context, the weight of that word because of the institution of slavery in our history. And this kind of going back of this, uh, not just an economic uh, or sorry, that it is, is an economic slavery, not a social or a racial. And so this tension between the words slave and bondservant, and different translations uh, working within the, these contexts, wrestling with these different lenses, that for a, a first century Christian to, to read this passage is radically different than our own context. Just the, the separation of time and what has happened here, we know that there is a, a break from our conception of antebellum chattel slavery that we have seen here in the United States and in the Western world at large, as well as a break from the ancient Near East context that we see in the Old Testament, that this is against a, a feigned inclusion of worship and evangelism that we saw as slave owners justified their ownership here using these verses, these passages, and other passages and verses similar to them. They would have separate pews, separate Bibles, and separate religion. There were actually, in our own country's history, uh, slave Bibles, in which passages that spoke to freedom in Christ, manumission of the slave, release of others, were entirely removed. But this is the historical context and lens which we come to this question. And so what I want to offer this morning is not a full treatment of Genesis to Revelation. Uh, that would be impossible in this time. But instead, what I want to offer is an overview, a, a biblical theology of slavery. Slavery is in the Bible. That much is, is clear and true. But what does Scripture say about slavery is interesting. Our minds, of course, go back to the very first instance that we see uh, of, of slavery in our minds is the Jews there, Israel there in Egypt. Deuteronomy 5.15 calls them to remember their slavery, to look back on it so as to see what God has done. From that standpoint, I want to move forward from the Old Testament into the New of, of some of uh, what Scripture says towards slavery. You can try to write down these passages and, and come back to them. If you don't get them all and you want them later, just let me know and we'll uh, move through it. But this is what we see of, of slaves in the Old Testament and New. The very first one is in Leviticus 19.9, that there were preventative measures, uh, food for the poor, so that slavery was not entered into. Similarly, in Deuteronomy 15.2, that there were no interest loans, so that slavery were not entered into. In Exodus 21, 26, there was a debt release if someone was harmed or cruel to their slave. In Exodus 20, 10, we see that slaves enjoyed the same Sabbath rest as their masters, that they were treated as paid workers in Leviticus 25, 39, that slavery was temporary with a maximum of six years in Exodus 21, 2, that even more so they were released in years of jubilee every 49 years in Leviticus 25, 54, that they could be redeemed by their fam family, kinsmen, redemption, there in Exodus 21.8. That they could purchase their own freedom in Leviticus 25.49. That those who trafficked men and women against their will, as in Deuteronomy 24.7, were killed. 
that in Deuteronomy 23.15, Israel was called to refuge and provide care for runaways. In Genesis 15.2, as well as in 2 Kings 4.12, we see that slaves offer and operate as heirs and advisors. At least 13 parables of Jesus, most revealing our state of debt before God in which he exploits, or rather he repudiates exploitation. In Colossians 4.1, we see that there is equal standing in Christ. Then in Galatians 3.28, that we stand as equals before the throne of God. Let me state very clearly that scripture does not create or endorse broken systems or statuses. It redeems them where they are. Let me say that again. Scripture does not create or endorse broken broken systems or statuses. It redeems them where they are. And so even if we look back in our own history and we say, what of chattel slavery? What of the United States? What of the colonies? What of the the Pacific Islands? What of, of all of these places that have seen slavery perpetuated? Well, if we're looking at what Scripture actually says about these things, simply by uh, trafficking them them against their will, uh, they would have been killed. Uh, They should have been refuging runaways. It should not have been for more than six years, and often significantly less time than that. And they were to be treated as equals. And so this economic slavery makes sense. Why we translate this word here as bondservant rather than slave. What we need is to reframe our minds. To reframe our minds, or rather, about what God has said, what Scripture has done, the Bible not condoning or supporting the system of slavery despite its abusive justifications by sinful and wicked men. That God has called the church to stand against any sinful extortion of those made in so what does this mean for us? In one sense, we look to scripture and we look to this past and we see what what sin has done. We we see what slavery has become and we reject those expressions that say, well, you believe in a slaveholder's religion. That simply is not true. We reframe what the historical reality is, what the biblical account is calling us to. And we we see the, the beauty and redemption of God. John Chrysostom comments, he says, If anyone should ask where slavery comes from, why it has stolen us into human life, I shall tell you, it is avarice that brought about slavery. It is acquisitiveness, which is insatiable. This is not the original human condition. This horrid thing was begotten by sin. So we reject those distortions and justifications, and we don't see this simply as in the past. That slavery exists today. That trafficking happens even in our city. That we support and pray for ends to that trafficking. We support and pray for ends to slavery. I encourage you to to write this down. If you don't already have it, pull out your phone uh, and add a contact contact for for the National Anti-Trafficking Support Line. Uh, The number is plus one, eight, 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 three, seven, three, seven, eight. Say it again, 888-373-7888. If you witness something uh, that you think may be trafficking, you can call that line and report it, and the agency will step in uh, to end this. There are so many practical...
practical uh, ways and ministries that are, are going about ending slavery today. Some of the missionaries that we support in Thailand are specifically working there in the red light district of, of that city. That we would pray and support them to these ends. That we would reject distortions, abuses, and justifications of sin in the church and outside. Again, a short but hopefully clear and sufficient answer to does the Bible condone slavery? Uh, A simple no, just wouldn't do. But what do we see here in this passage? If that's not what it's talking about, if it's not talking about slaves and masters in our experience and understanding of the word, what is Paul calling the church to do? Recognizing that these are economic bond servants working off a debt, what is their task and obedience look like? Well, I think as a better understanding and, and framing of this passage and others like it is actually very similar to our understanding of work, of, of employment, of, of working towards an end. That masters in the biblical sense are, are not unlike bosses in the American sense. Uh, that the uh, allegory, the, the illustration breaks down at, at some point, and there are, there are significant differences uh, in class and strata here of, of this society versus our own. But I think that this is a helpful way to best understand what the church is called to do and to be. And so we're going to take this in just two parts, understanding what the way of our work is, wherever our status, wherever our position, wherever our calling may be, and then also the heart behind. So starting with the way of our work, and what we see again in verse 5, bond service, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. That Paul has called workers, that Paul has called servants here to sincere obedience. That there is a legitimate care and work to be done by those who are serving in one way or another, those who are working in these ways. That there is respect and obedience not to win favor, but to honor God. Notice how God has moved the position of our, our, our heart, of our, of our work. What are we working towards and how? The, the function is not simply to earn a paycheck, not simply to, to meet needs, but to honor God. It means that, that working for promotions or awards or, or favor has been now replaced with excellence unto the Lord. And it doesn't mean that, that promotions or awards or, or favor are wrong, but if our motivation is, is to prop up ourselves only when others are watching, then we are missing the sincere obedience to which Christ has called us. When I was in uh, middle school, our uh, athletic room, our, our locker room for, for the guys, uh, above the door leading out to the, the practice fields, every, every day that we would walk out and, sure it was not unique. There was a, a sign above the door, a little metal sign printed on it. Uh, character is what you do when no one is watching. Right? And obviously the, the idea there is, is to shape these you know, 7th and 8th graders in, into you know, NFL linebackers. And so they want you to put in the work. right? That's character. You, you do the reps even when the coach is looking the other way. You don't slow down when you're running your laps, but instead uh, you, you press through. And if that's obviously the, the mindset that there is here for just a, a public school in East Texas, 
how much more should we embody it as those that are in Christ? As character is, is what we do when no one is watching. That our sincere obedience in our work, the way that we apply ourselves, is not simply for what benefits me, but it's also for what Christ is doing in me. That it's not simply for those that are servants, it's also for bosses. Notice the right regard that follows as he lays out what bondservants are to do, the heart of their doing it, not for eye service, people pleasers, as bondservants of Christ. And then verse 9, he says, and masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. He, he says, I want you to do exactly what I'm calling the, your servants to do. I want you to treat them with the, the same care and regard as a servant of Christ. Not building up your own kingdom, not building up your own worth, your own wealth, but as serving the Lord. And and stop your threat. That there's a higher standard here for those that are, are serving as overseers, as a master, as a boss in these ways. That the right, right regard for them is rendering them the same regard as equals, but also to recognize the harshness that is there not be so because why god is our judge god is our master how do we speak and lead those under and around us how do you speak to those that are around you how do you speak to those uh, that are under you at work the picture that we have here is a clear one Uh, the book of philemon uh, speaks to exactly this one of the the shortest books uh, in scripture at large especially in the new testament and what it simply is 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 laying out a, a specific example Philemon was a leader in the church. Paul was in prison. Philemon's servant ran away from him, stole some things, and and fled. Paul finds him, presents the gospel to him. He's saved under the preaching of Paul, as finally understanding, oh, this is Christianity, and this is the wrong that I've done. And so Paul and Onesimus, here the servant, And Philemon and the church there, Paul is writing to what is likely an angry and upset master from a runaway slave that Paul is obligated by the law uh, to give refuge to. And how does he write to him? He, He says, Philemon, I want you to receive Onesimus, not as a servant, not as someone who's wronged you, not as someone who's stolen from you. What does he say? Receive him as a brother. Paul goes even further and says, if he's stolen anything, I'll pay you back. This is the, the picture that we have here of freedom. is not receiving him and beating him into submission, not with harsh words or intimidation, but receiving him as an equal, as a brother. That the right regard here is that we are servants of one master. That if you are an employee or a boss, if you are a slave or if you are free, if you are a master, that God is judge over both servant and master. That he can and does use all peoples. That we are working as goodwill unto the Lord, receiving his approval, his blessing. That this church, that the work of Christ is seen across all classes of Every breakdown of, of the caste system, of race, of gender, of role, 
occupation and honor up here in the church. So what's interesting about this is that Paul is is writing to, to servants and masters, not assuming that the other will necessarily be He's writing to to servants that are there in Ephesus, that are a part of this church, knowing that their masters may not be Christians and that they are in abusive and oppressive and beat-down situations. And he writes to masters knowing that some of their servants may not be followers of Christ and to treat them with respect and honor and care, putting off harsh words. And it's what we see in all of Scripture. That wherever you inhabit, wherever you work, wherever you go, whatever you do, your way of work ought to be in declaration of who is truly the master. The the way that I I work as, as an employee should look different from those that are not in Christ. That they should say, what is different about you? Why do you do this? Why do you work harder than everyone else? Why do you care with excellence even when I'm not looking? Why, why do you treat me different as a boss? I've never had a boss like you. That employees and bosses and neighbors and friends would come to Christ, not simply because we shared the gospel, though absolutely that is part but that our way of work would look different than that of the world. That there is one master over all. That God will not be displaced off his throne. That no one else can can lead as he leads. Even just reading this passage, if if you'll excuse the the, the nerdiness for a moment, my my mind just jumped to to J.R. Tolkien. Right, was it, he said his, his ring verse there is inscribed on the one ring. He says there's one ring to rule them, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness find them. Here's this picture of, of this, the villain in the story. And he, he's given out all of these rings, the three to the elves and six to the dwarves and nine to the men. And, and he's just laying out this plan. And they don't know that as he disperses these gifts, that there's, there's one ring, there's one person that's going to, to rule them all. And at various points, he loses the ring. And, and what do the people say? They say, we have it now. Let's use it. Let's, let's wield it to, to do these things. Not understanding that it only obeys one master. That those other rings are, are obeying, obeying the one that created them. And if, if this is true of wickedness and of depravity, and of evil, as, as Tolkien is illustrating, how much more would it be true over the master and creator of all? As he has created and, and called in, into submission and into obedience and to lordship, and he says, wield what I have given you. He will not be put off his throne. That the way of our work ought to be done un with so sincere obedience and right regard. But it also expresses itself in the heart of our work. Looking again that we would work unto the Lord. Verse 6, not in the way of eye service, not as people pleasers, but as bond servants, as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from 
the heart. Reigning your service with a good will is to the Lord and not to men. That we would work unto the Lord. That God has called us to work for his approval, for his honor, not for others. You may have heard the story of a master carpenter who, who is called to his final job after 30 to, to 40 years of, of carpentry. Uh, he is tired. He is done. He is spent. He, he sees retirement around the, the bend. And, and rather than, than easing into it, his employer comes to him and says, I want you to build one more house. I'm not going to spare any expense. I want you to, to, to just go out with a bang. Here's your last job. And the master carpenter is, is tired. He, he's done. He's, he's through. And so he, he cuts corners, sloppily workmanship, half-hearted nails. Studs are maybe a little further apart than they're supposed to be. But he's done. He finishes the job. And he, goes and he says, all right, it's done. His employer tosses him the keys and says, here's your retirement home. If we work into the Lord and not into men, we recognize the purpose, the end of our work. How often do we, like this carpenter, not recognize the eternal nature, not recognize that this is ultimately something that we get to enjoy, something that we get to participate in, something that we get to have retirement in, is the kingdom of God. And we cut corners, and we space out studs, and we half-heartedly apply, and when nobody's looking, maybe it's not as true. Let me tell you this morning that if you do a joyful and honorable work, regardless of how your boss views you or compensates you, God sees you. Let me also say to you that this morning, if you do your work with a begrudging and half-hearted spirit, even though your boss has no idea that God sees you, that we have been called to work unto the Lord, not This means that we would serve Christ and his kingdom. It says here that we would be sincerely seeking the will of of God to do good. We recognize that our work here on earthly sense is, is not ultimate, that we are called to look to the eternal, that in one sense there is no retirement from the kingdom. So as we serve Christ, we, we do our work with excellence. If, if that's in a factory line, do it with excellence. If that's in the service industry, do it with excellence. But also recognize that there are eternal things that you can do here in your work, here in your life, here in your station. That we would serve Christ in his kingdom. That this is as it's outworking in the the ways that we serve the church, that we serve each other, that we serve God. The ways that we share the gospel, that we share the hope. But it's also internal in the ways that Christ is shaping us to be more like him. Putting off sin and pursuing holiness. Walking in goodness and in truth and sincerity. In in faithful love, encouragement, and service of one another. That there is an eternal nature of our work. Seek to serve Christ in his kingdom. Finally, that we, in the heart of our work, would show no partiality. Look again at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. 
going back to, to our view of, of slavery, repeating again what we see in, in Colossians 4, that, that exploitation is repudiated, that Galatians 3.28, that there is equal standing for those that are in Christ. There's neither male nor female, slave nor free, Greek nor Scythian nor, nor Jew, that we are all one in Christ. That there is no partiality on God's behalf. That race and status, economic, or location, the size of, of your house, or what car you drive, or where you go, or what you do, there's no partiality before God. Those without Christ will go to hell. Those in Christ will go to heaven. There is no partiality. Back to our lens and context. Do you favor those around you in ways that the Lord does not? Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not calling us towards colorblindness or towards cultural erasure to, to say, well, I don't see color. Well, I don't see class. Yes, you do. Yes, we do. Why? Because God has created it. He has created it as, as beautiful, as part of the diversity of the world, and yet he has called us to unity in Christ. That to, to put off a, a lens of, of colorblindness, of, of, of there is none of this, is a disservice to the creation of God. Instead, we ought to seek equality over that erasure, to, to seek ways to invite the disenfranchised into this place. To ask if someone walks through those doors who does not look like me, that dresses differently than me, that has a, a different experience than me, would I look at them with suspicion, with prejudice, with fear, or with the service of Christ. Christ has called us to be about a different way of work than the world. A different heart of work than the world. A way which honors and pleases the single master over all. Why? Because God is the master of all. We should look unto him and his kingdom in faithful Father, we thank you, God, for the ways that you work in this world. Lord, that you are master over all. Lord, that our world is not spinning aimlessly. Lord, that, that suffering and wickedness will not go unpunished or unquenched. Lord, that you have called us to excellent work. Father, that even now there is Lord, pain and, and tragedy and, Lord, trafficking and slavery, Lord, happening here in the city and around the world. And, and God, we, we pray, Lord, we, we ask and call for an end. Lord, that, that you would lift up, Lord, the hurting. Lord, that you would use your church offer hope. Lord, that the gospel would go out of this place. Lord, let us honor you and work with excellence. Lord, looking to the eternal. Lord, reframing our minds to what you are doing. 
Father, be lifted up in us. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name and the power of your Holy Spirit.